Hi guys, this is Kevin. Uh, I'm here with uh, Hardik and Tejas. We're going to discuss a couple of the readings for the second meeting of the cast month. One of them is the paper on uh, prejudices against reservation policies. And the other is the Dalit Panther Manifesto. So yeah, we're going to start with the reservation policies paper. Uh, hi, Tejas. So we've already uh, discussed some of these topics before so uh, let's let's get into what uh, what uh, thorard uh, calls the common arguments against reservation policies one of them is uh, how uh, it only benefits parts of the dalit demographic and uh, doesn't benefit the real beneficiaries which should be uh, the poor the poor dalit and does there should be an economic criteria for reservations uh, since we uh, this paper was written uh, a few years ago since then we had the ews so uh, with that uh, in retrospect what are your views on the economic criteria uh, argument so thorat gives a lot of statistics to prove that it's not true that the rich dalits or rich sts obcs are benefiting i mean he, his focus is on uh, uh, scs in the papers so he says that you know in the c and d uh, category of government jobs you'll find lot of uh, dalits who uh, who are uh, not much educated you know they are like high school or 12 standard pass uh, uh, people and also like from uh, poor background you know no land or uh, like uh, things like that so he gives lot of data and he says that there was this proposal that reservation should be according to uh, economic uh, condition and that it was rejected but then we know that you know aws uh, came into being right so uh, the thing is this demand is very old this demand actually is right from the beginning like right from the construction came into being upper caste said that caste should not be a criteria for two reasons because you know poor people are in all castes and that if you have caste based reservations then caste will actually become more rigid so that was the argument that was given by upper caste and it was not just ordinary people it was also academics it was also media and even politicians so there was uh, this uh, understanding of reservation system in a very wrong understanding of reservation system in the upper caste section but the theoretical basis of reservation you know uh, so that discussion also was happening parallelly and therefore even though there were these arguments they were not accepted because reservation policy was on a solid basis but you know upper caste did try to 
bring that point in discussion again and again it hap- again happened when the mandal commission was implemented in 90s and finally bjp did accept that argument so it's like a victory for upper caste but it dilutes the reservation policy you know because i mean it came into being for a certain historical reason and if you make it based on uh, an individuals or a family's financial background you know you basically completely do away with the whatever the logic that is there for this policy yeah and i think we also discussed it the last time right because last time when we were reading in the last set when we were reading moses paper he it one of the arguments there or i think one of the other papers i think the caste in the 21st century paper one of the arguments there was any which ways that this argument that economics should be basis of reservation and not caste is is statistically unprovable because when for example that paper did a study of students who were from the similar economic background uh, they still lagged behind uh, you know upper caste students in terms of reading comprehension in terms of just basic uh comprehensive ability so so it's obvious that there's something much more than economics at play here right so so then there's this argument that you know oh let's just have economics as a basis instead of caste it, it just seems not on any form of proper theoretical grounding or any form of even empirical understanding because it just seems one of those arbitrary demands or just like you know i would even call it like just plain whining it just looks like this lot of whining around it but it's not grounded into any form of like actual actual proof or actual evidence which brings me to my next point which is the argument about efficiency right so a lot of argument around reservation pages is also that oh uh, you know if we start giving reservation uh, it's less quote unquote efficient and uh one of the things that that argument also does is it very easily then leads to the next argument which is oh merit argument oh tomorrow you would want uh like one of the very strong that no oh, tomorrow you would want reservation in cricket also right and i mean i would want that uh, but that is beside the point but you know this argument of efficiency easily leads to then another argument which uh, goes into oh, you know what it's merit based and you know that that notion of merit jumps into it what do you have to say about that like what is this efficiency argument and what is happening over there uh, it's efficiency is subjective right i mean when people make these arguments they make them because they don't like the policy you know they feel that it's completely biased against them that is the reason why they find all these reasons to hate it uh, and so you know i don't even feel like countering it you know by giving like proper uh, logic but you know efficiency is one subjective and second it's not it's not like you know if you have less marks that means that you know you cannot study in a college right because when you know people tend to think that it's very easy for you know a reserve category person to get into college but that is not true like look at look at the uh, you know you, you take any college you have suppose you are competing from obc quota which has 27% reservation 
but what is obc population it's 50% of the country right so even for that 20% quota you are competing against thousands of other obc candidates so it's not like you 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 apply and you automatically get a seat right and so this argument is generally for colleges so i'm talking about that it's not like even if you get into a college you don't have to study you still have to study you still have to give exams and pass and then only you can go to next year right so then how can you say that you know these people don't learn anything or they don't know anything once they graduate how how does that make sense at all you know they are studying in the same college with other so called general category they are studying the same thing they are giving the same exams they have the same criteria to pass those exams so how can you say that you know they are not learning or they don't know anything after they graduate that's just not true and i don't think that people don't know this they they know it they just you know want to find some reason to criticize the policy and even for jobs so we know that because you know i am already out of college and working i know that even when people are hired as freshers they have to be given some training it's not like you know you have have a degree that means you are automatically able to perform whatever tasks you are assigned to you know yeah that's not because we know that there is a gap between what is taught in college and what industries require so so even if there is reservation in employment when people join they do learn on the job you know and so the argument again is like mostly for um, field of medicine where you know you if you are a reservation candidate and then you know you don't if you don't if you don't learn properly you know that that will put patients at risk but those students medical students do have to pass exams right and i mean it just it just prejudice against lower castes when people say that these people don't know anything you know i find it really Because, funny that uh, whenever making this argument what you exactly just said people just forget that even if a student has gotten into a college through reservations they still have to pass the same exams to get that degree they're still doing the same amount of work probably more than any general category student would have to do and uh, and yeah there, there is this tendency to uh, blame say doctors uh in the doctors in the medical field who are there through reservation or when some bridge falls then they make these jo- jokes about oh the the yeah. builder the engineer must be from reserved category people make this connection between how much marks you get and how much you know when all of us know that that's not true like there is no causal relationship you know in what skills you have or how much knowledge you have and how much marks you get in an exam you know because we know how our exams are and if you can if you can uh, what is the word for it if you can game them you can get more marks right there is no that causal relation at all 
so it does not mean that if somebody has less marks they they don't know anything that's just not true right uh, and another argument against reservation policies is about the effective outcomes of it and how uh whether it has reached the beneficiaries it's supposed to reach the paper goes into how uh it has statistically uh increased the representation of uh, dalits since it focuses on uh, scs it has increased the representation in government jobs uh and uh that is something that we uh, talked about before that they just uh you gave Uh, stats for to during our first uh, conversation but so not focusing on, not focusing on that but uh, i think we should uh, move on to uh, something of the suggestions that the paper gives uh, about increasing the increasing the coverage to the beneficiaries uh, one of which is one of the suggestions is uh, expanding reservation to the private sector this is uh, something of a debate that's been going on for as long as i remember uh, following it uh, but what is its history would you please go into that uh, i i i don't think there is a history history to that i mean there is a this demand is very old but nobody has taken it seriously there have been some politicians you know who say that this should happen or we will make it happen but nobody has seriously engaged with this issue or shown willingness to do something about it and i feel there will be lot of resistance if this move is even proposed by the private sector there are lot of complications also how to implement it because you know in the government jobs you have uh, this uh, rotation system 13 point roster and 200 point roster right and because it's a government policy you know implemented by government in government owned companies government you know does it you know it does not do it properly but you know there is some implementation even though the implementation is not perfect it does happen but in in the private sector monitoring that will be really difficult because the tendency of these private companies will be to support us you know it is hap- it, it happens in the government sector itself so i don't surely think that private sector will do it honestly even if the law is passed tomorrow but we need to like think how to go about it i mean the law should be passed anyway the implementation part can be looked at later you know how to do it and all of that but the law should be passed but i also feel we need to like think about more ways because again in the private sector we know that uh, formal jobs are like a small percentage right the total economy has just 10% formal formal jobs and in that like government will have 3-4% and rest will be in the private sector so it's a very it's a small pie as Thorath also mentions right that most of the jobs are in the informal economy and in the informal economy you have um, people who have their own 
person enterprises but that again will be a you know a small percentage so most of the people work as daily wage laborers or seasonal workers or in factories on contract etc and reservation policy in the private sector will again not cover those people so we need to so some people when especially when they attack reservation system they feel that this system should uh, take care of everything you know this system should bring everybody out of poverty but one that is not the mandate of this system and this system just can't do it you know it's not possible for reservation system to take care of everything because its target is only you know specific things like government jobs and tomorrow say private private sector jobs which are in the formal economy so you know you you're saying that oh but so many people are still poor in the dalit community or adivasi community or obc community well that's because reservation you know is not a solution for all those problems you have to do lot of other things for you know all these things to change uh, that sort of bring me to the next point there's this tendency so whenever like you hear one of these very uh, layman arguments over social media around reservation right uh, one of this argument that comes out is uh, what i call uh, the mercedes argument right so there will be this a guy who will randomly tag you and say ki you know what i know this sc person who has a mercedes and i have like like or like some replace it with some other car or like a big bungalow or some some something material right and 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 i've had heard this argument what what that sort of reflects to me is that's a larger tendency to continuously try to pin down the topic of reservation on individuals when it is clearly meant as a group remedy right it's it's meant to remedy a group thing when you are saying that oh you know what i know this one person who knows this one person who is very rich and he's from uh, the dalit community so obviously there is a misuse of reservation policy atijas uh, what do you think about that what what's happening over there so while we know that poverty decline has happened to reservation as you mentioned that it has not happened enough uh, because the the percentage of government formal sector is very less and even when you do increase it to private say maybe couple of years later it will still be a very small portion because formal economy in india is that limited so so while poverty elevation has happened that often tends to get sort of this perverted when this argument comes on oh you know what i know this and this rich person and they are just using it uh, for their own advantage or seeing the the point is that the larger community which is still primarily poor and still needs gets discriminated against needs that sort of system in place uh, what 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 is what do you think is happening over there tejas again like you know these people just don't like the policy so they want reasons to hate it and therefore you know they find these reasons they might even know somebody who has a car or has an iphone you know but then the reason they know that person is because that person might be part of their circle so you know that people who are you know you know people who are from your class generally right so the reason that these people would know somebody who you know who is middle class or upper middle class is because they are from that class and they have no connect they don't know 
lakhs of other people who are in poverty that's because there is that disconnect class and also caste disconnect right so it actually tells you like you know there, there is this one person that this person really remembers because that person is an exception from dalit community or adivasi community right and that is why you remember that person because you know they are we know that the percentage of middle class or upper middle class dalits or adivasis or obcs will be like very small and as you said you know it, the the policies meant for groups you know group is taken as the unit of this policy which is exactly why ews is totally wrong because here in the economic criteria the unit is an individual or family actually the unit is family right and you look at the family not not what group that family belongs to because if you take that family's caste as a criteria then you know somebody belonging to say brahmin caste they have don't have a history of you know any any kind of uh, subjugation so you only have to focus on the family and the family history but then what is the history of a poor family which is upper caste why are they poor is it because of their caste what is the reason so so the thing is that when you are framing these policies you are trying to correct historical wrongs right that is the primary basis of reservation policy but when you give reservation to a poor upper caste family what is the historical wrong that you are trying to correct are you saying that they are poor because you know they faced caste discrimination because you know they had to be in um, dehumanizing low paying jobs that is not correct that is not the history of that group at all they might be poor for lot of other reasons but their group identity is not the reason their caste identity is not the reason so then and you know financial background you know economic uh, condition is something that can change within a years or you know four five years right so i mean there is so there is no that historical basis that you know there are like it's very uh, theoretically and empirically proven things about say sc st or obc the criteria that have been framed you know they have historical reasons and uh, which still continue and there is a lo- lot of literature around it but what is the history of poverty among say brahmins first of all that poverty will be like you know if you look at the percentage of say poor people among brahmins that will not be the majority of brahmins that will be the minority of brahmins right so the the thing here is that there should not be a single poor brahmin because a poor brahmin is an anomaly and that is something that stands out right while for bahujans for ssc obcs 
poverty is something that is the reality of majority of the population and therefore people just don't care you know so even though reservation has not surely helped to bring most of these people out of poverty there are calls to end reservation already giving like lot of nonsense arguments and what you mentioned about uh, uh correcting historical uh, wrongs brings me to a next topic which is a pretty contentious topic uh and with something even as leftists might uh, disagree on uh in terms of our views which is uh, reparations uh uh thora touches upon this a little uh, around the end of the paper but doesn't go into it a lot uh it's and it's contentious because uh, people disagree on whether reparation should even be a thing and even if they are how would you actually calculate the amount of damage that has been done on a community level to uh, to even calculate uh, how much reparations are owned uh, so what are your views on reparations so i have actually looked at this topic um, you know because india does not have you know india has never done something like this right. but i think other countries might have done Yeah. and i have not looked at it so i don't really know much about it but i feel that one as you said it's very difficult to measure and you know come at a figure or whatever for something like this and second is that you know it it will be a one time thing right. you do this and then upper caste upper caste can say oh we gave them reparations now we can move on but that one time thing isn't going to solve the problem right mm-hmm. but it can um, negatively affect all other policies that are in effect right now may it be reservation scholarships or lot of you know other uh, budgetary provisions for scs and sts etc so basically this is as i said right there is this tendency of uh, you know disassociating history from the present right there is is because of this very individualistic outlook on you know how people uh, currently live are because of their own circumstances or max because of like you know maybe what happened in their previous generations but very few people have that sort of foresight where they're like oh you know what this is happening because of this very cumulative history of say maybe 2000 years right and and so one of the thing that thora touches on in the paper which is very interesting is this idea that brahmins or upper castes uh, but you know primarily brahmins are very scared of losing their privilege and you know which is one of the main reasons uh, why they are sort of uh, against this idea of reservation and they come up with this very weird uh, no theoretical footing wale arguments to just sort of be like you know what this is wrong because xy and that xyz generally doesn't have any solid footing for it uh, so what what do you think about that like like so in this situation what do you think is the solution because you know there will always be this sort of resistance right and this sort of uh, especially now there will always be this sort of resistance towards reservation policy no many no ma- no matter how much paper we write and how much arguments we give so what do you think is happening there like do you think there's a solution to it do you think that you know uh, I don't know like what what do you think about this 
or do you think it's in, it, like sort of not conceivable at all like you know we just have to sort of be like ha tum like you keep on going your ranting but we are going to do these things and we are going to fight for these things i feel that there might be that fear among upper castes you know about losing losing privileges i mean i can't look into their minds and read their minds but it seems plausible because uh, you know if things change if people who were inferior to you 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 thought you were superior superior to them and it was also materially true when things suddenly start changing you know that will shake up the social relations right and then upper castes will have to adjust to a new reality where lot of the things that they were taking for granted they can't anymore so and that might that might uh, disturb them and i feel that that might have happened already where they see more bahujans in the classroom or in their offices or things like that you know and so so and that fear you know will only grow because i feel that things are changing and there is a lot of pressure from from ground up that things should change the anti caste movement is getting stronger and stronger so that you know that that is very much plausible no so that is what i was talking about so basically like in so the idea that we should ideal scenario may expect more and more sort of uh, you know counter tactics from uh, majorly upper caste groups right where we are like oh you know like sort of this counter narrative and very strong sort of uh, propaganda and very strong sort of this even for that matter violent tendencies and you know atrocities uh, it will so basically you are saying that because of that pressure that is building from the ground up there's high chances of that sort of counter rhetoric only increasing with years yes i feel that the ews quota is sort of a reflection of that it's like a revenge by upper caste they don't like the reservation system but they also can't take it away they can't uh, stop it so they came up with this ews quota which at least dilutes it and then going forward they can you know uh, do more of such dilutions so i feel ews quota is symptomatic of that and uh, and you know as the movement goes stronger the counter movement also will grow stronger uh, i read um, suryakant vagmure's paper today only about civility you know there is this notion of peacefulness everywhere you know as far as the the present social relations are going on without any disturbance when you know like lower castes accept their inferior position and they don't oppose they don't raise any voice things will be calm things will be peaceful so there is that civility that you maintain but the moment there is a rupture in that civility when people start question the status quo 
you know that results in confrontations and you know like violence as well so so that that can happen and we have seen that happening also right now and then we hear of incidents where when people raise voice there is like gujarat kevin will know is a good example where yeah a group riding on horse was opposed or somebody with a beard was was faced abuse yeah and so, even uh, when the modi government came into power again the una incident happened right after that right so as far as you know there is that civility that is maintained nobody is questioning anything everybody is accepting accepting whatever positions they have then everything is hunky dory the moment people start questioning things the moment the status quo is shaken up that is when you see confrontations yeah um and yeah i think we should uh, move on to the uh, next paper uh, which is the dalit panther manifesto there's a lot in there to discuss uh, but i think we're going to stick to some uh, go with some points that are tangential to the paper because uh, there's a there's not a lot of history in there right uh, so i i think we should go into that um i i read it and i also read the the 10 point program of the black panthers uh, in tandem to compare you know how much influence there is and and there is quite a lot of influence there but there's uh, obviously a lot of unique things in here one of one of those things is how the the lit panther manifesto um it uh, kind of equates dalits with proletarian yeah yeah, yeah. So- it, it 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 equates the dalits with pro- uh, proletarian and uh, it thinks of class struggle and caste struggle uh, very similarly um yes yes uh, so dalit panther we know the famous split right right uh, with so one section was the marxist section and other was the buddhist section and the manifesto clearly has imprint of the marxist section namdev dasal was the person who was responsible or who was the main figure from that section and we see that in the manifesto as well so even though all the members of the dalit panthers they were all dalits from the sc community and therefore the manifesto talks about mainly dalits but when it talks about who dalit is that definition suddenly becomes more broad based right right it says you know all the working class people all the uh, peasants and women uh, irrespective of caste etc and that is because uh, that manif- manifesto wants to build a broad based politics that is not restricted only to dalits you know and it it can build solidarities with other groups as well other marginalized groups and it can be sort of a class struggle so you see that clearly in the manifesto 
even though the focus is mainly on the lids right um and just a second yeah uh building a broad based politics uh brings me to uh, th- there's there's this the split uh, obviously happened right but there's this uh, charge that is put against the panthers of uh, not just the panthers but uh, even other parties like rpi of of opportunism uh, in the name of uh, ambedkarite politics um and how, how much of that do you think is true do you mean even panthers have faced that criticism or generally yeah. ambedkarite parties generally ambedkarite parties but uh, i've also seen uh, panthers being equated in the same way i mean factions of it that split off and and uh, went to greener right, pastures right. yeah i mean we know that republican party of india split into like i don't know 60 70 groups so basically every leader would form their own party you know with the same name sometimes with just their own name attached to it uh and that they some sections did you know have opportunistic tendencies one can't really deny that politics is a very messy thing we all know now electoral politics you know it requires money and it's just very hard to build a party so some people would you know form alliances with other parties so that they can share power with them which is what happened to certain groups and dalit panthers also you know after it split people went their own way and dasar famously supported indira gandhi uh, during emergency then he went to join shivsena later in his life we know that history and but i feel it's sometimes it's also because of the limitations or restrictions that dalit leaders face there have been examples of dalit leaders who genuinely have tried to build parties from ground up but the casteism is so strong in society that other than their own caste and maybe you know some sections of other dalit caste just won't find any votes even if they are like really capable leaders and you know their party has progressive agenda so they feel sort of compelled to join forces with other parties or become part of other parties or or some people you know some people just think of their own self interest so which is what you see uh, happening like prakash ambedkar is a good example of somebody who tried to genuinely build you know a broad based party mm-hmm. which would be focused on not politics but also other uh, marginalized section and he's trying that since mid 80s so it's been like three decades now right he but even he uh, hasn't really came up with a new new system. party very recently right yeah yeah so 
so he actually has come up with like three four parties in his whole career you know right. and he has tried to build um, build base uh, among obcs among nomadic tribes among adivasis among muslims etc so he can take some dalit votes for granted you know he will he knows that you know these people will vote for me but he hasn't found success in other sections even though he has all the qualities of a good leader and he has a really good manifesto etc so these are the limitations in which dalit leaders operate the casteism is so strong that they struggle financially and they struggle you know in getting accepted by other sections of society and that is also one reason why you see so many splits and you know sometimes opportunistic politics so one thing that i wanted to discuss was this uh, so so there is this renewed notion again uh, recently from what i've been seeing uh, in politics generally but also in like for example if you talk about our circle all only right so there is this notion that uh, there is this broad political coalition or uh, similar idea of the stances where you see that okay you know what um even though we'll have to tackle it separately and in separate separate stands but uh, caste and class politics or class and caste struggle can go hand in hand and you know can benefit each other uh, which is also a strand that dalit panther had which is also you know uh, it it seems like uh, also there is this notion that you know it seems like a natural alliance quote unquote like it seems like this alliance is pretty natural because again most of the uh, caste atrocities have usually had a economic base so you know most of the dalits and obcs and sts are poor and marginalized uh, so it seems like a natural coalition or a natural broad based politics can form over there uh, historically of course it has never uh, sort of happened at least not successfully i think ambedkar had a stint where he for a couple of during a couple of years he had a successful labor strike and he had a successful labor thing where but that also i think again split off because uh the caste angle played into that where uh, some of the dalit some of the upper caste workers of the mill were discriminating against dalit workers right so 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 we have that sort of zone there so please what do you think about this idea this idea of like a broad based coalition uh, which historically we don't have enough success with like dalit panthers obviously no longer exists in the scene at least in that capacity as you told uh, prakash ambedkar who has tried to build this coalition of broad based hasn't really worked uh you know so so what do you think is happening there on the other hand that's the, the root on the other hand there's the yeah, left parties yeah on the other hand there's the left parties uh, who have also not found success with the uh with the dalits and with ambedkarites not as much as they would like to at least so when people talk about this alliance of caste and class what people have in their mind is that caste means lower caste and class mean upper caste left parties but the thing is that if you look at all the progressive anti caste movements or uh, ambedkar parties especially in maharashtra you will see that they have class analysis ingrained in them you know it it's so it's not separate if you there are lot of ambedkar scholars bahujan scholars 
who understand class you know they have studied marx they know the history of the communist movements and so for them these things are not separate it is it is like it is part of their politics so they don't think in these compartments that okay there is caste and there is class and then we need to bridge this to that that just so you you look at you i can give you a lot of examples like say rahul saheb kasbe then uh, uh, sarath patil who's maratha but you know he um, he was this uh, fully ambedkarite leader uh, then prakash ambedkar himself so if if you look at all these people you uh, dada saheb gaikwad you know in the 50s and 60s so they did not think of this you know there is caste and there is class and you know we need to somehow bring this together class analysis was part part of their politics you know it was not separate at all so when when people say caste and class you know there should be alliance what they mean is that ambedkar parties should come together with left parties or they should support them i don't know like i don't know what exactly people are talking about uh, so in maharashtra i know that in lot of in lot of constituencies these two sections like left parties and ambedkar parties will have alliance because they know that their politics you know it's similar on lot of counts but what has happened is that because the no uh, communist discourse at least in mainstream gets dominated by upper caste upper caste feel that you know communism means you know the bahujan people or bahujan parties or anti caste movements are not interested in marxism or in class analysis but historically that is not true like i was looking at satyashodhak movement uh, uh, last month like last few weeks and even in that movement like phule has you know he talks about agriculture he talks about uh, lot of other things you have um, narayan uh, sorry uh, lokhande narayan mega ji lokhande he was the actually uh, he had a union for workers in bombay mill workers he was the first person to form that kind of an organization uh, then like later on you had dindarao zawalkar who was out and out communist he died early so we did not get to see his you know politics uh, mature politics but you know he was going in that direction he was a communist so you have a lot of these examples then you have uh, gaikwad post ambedkar in post ambedkar times then you have prakash ambedkar now so class analysis was always part of the anti caste movement there is this uh, notion or you know this myth that oh, ambedkarites or anti caste movements are hostile to marxist analysis or class analysis but that is just not true uh, right so we've uh, gone over uh, 
points that occurred in the papers as well as uh, points tangential to the papers especially to the uh, dalit panther manifesto um, we'll continue this conversation uh, during the meetings we hope that the members come up with questions and put them in the document because we're, uh, we're not going to go over uh, we're not going to spend any time summarizing the papers this time around because there's no uh, there's no theoretical paper per se all of these are papers that you have to read um, so we'll go straight into the questions um, so hoping to see you there um, goodbye guys and uh, thank you uh, hardik and tejas both for being here